pray together. <coughs> Father, thank you for the privilege of having just uh, lifted up uh, our voices in, in, in praise, in hearing testimonies of your work in the lives of your people. And now, Lord, we very specifically take every one of our thoughts captive and make it obedient to you. We are aware that there are forces of darkness that are continually around us at work to interfere with our hearing of the word, with our understanding of it, and with the yielding of our minds and hearts. Thank you, Jesus, that when you rose from the dead, you gave us authority over all of the forces of darkness, that you overcame the enemy, and we too can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And we do declare this place off limits to any influences except the holy influences of the Spirit of God today. And we invite him into our midst. We open our hearts and invite the King of Glory to take up his residence as King in this place. And in the next little while, Father, as we hear your word, we pray that you will take seed and plant it into soil that has been made uh, ready, Father, through this time of worship. In Jesus' name, Amen. Billy Graham's brother-in-law, a man named Leighton Ford, while doing research for a book many years ago, uh, he interviewed several people that were being trained uh, to be counselors at a Billy Graham crusade in Detroit. And he asked them, he said, uh, what, what's the one greatest hindrance that you experience in your life that keeps you from freely sharing your faith in Jesus Christ with others? Well, various people gave various reasons, but by far the largest majority, about 51% of them said, were afraid of how the people are going to react. And we said, no one likes to be ridiculed, rejected, or regarded as some kind of an oddball. Uh, Christians largely are quite uptight when it comes to evangelism. And ironically, we have this in common with the ones that we are trying to share our faith to, because they are pretty uptight at being witnessed to. Because no one likes to have, quote, religion shoved down their throats. So if we're going to unleash our outreach potential, we're talking about that, we're going to have to answer this question. Is there a way of communicating the gospel that actually transcends these barriers uh, of uptightness, as I call them? And I want to begin by reminding you of some words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossian church. He says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. So according to Paul, evangelism or witnessing that has the potential of transcending this uptightness barrier that both communicators and receivers seem to experience, has several significant components to it. There is wise behavior, so there is more than speech involved. And there is speech that is full of grace and it is seasoned with salt. And there is a sensitivity to the opportune moment as well. And what I want to do in the rest of this message as we conclude this series on unleashing our outreach potential is to kind of unpack that a little bit for us. And I want to begin by going back to something that I learned about the Greek philosopher Aristotle who almost two millennia ago, talking about the relationship between teachers and students, uh, had a model that when I, from the time I heard it made a whole lot of sense. And its brilliance lies in the fact that two millennia later, it has not lost any of its relevance. Excuse me. He said there are basically three channels through which the communication takes place between the teacher and the student. And he used three rhyming Greek words to describe them. Logos, which refers to the content of what the teacher is teaching. Ethos, which refers to the character of the teacher. 
and pathos which refers to the compassion of the teacher. Content, character and compassion in the teacher are three components and each one has a very significant effect upon the listener. The logos or the content of the teacher's words provides understanding in the mind of the student. The ethos or character of the teacher, on the other hand, provides credibility for the message in the mind of the student. But it is the pathos or compassion of the teacher that provides the motivation for the change. And so logos, ethos and pathos work together to produce understanding, credibility and motivation. And of course, really, the brilliance of this lies in the fact that it applies to all kinds of communication between families, in the home, uh, and certainly when it comes to communicating the faith. And it happens to be perfectly parallel to the components that the Apostle Paul advised us in Colossians. And so let me just take you through each one of these three and how they might help overcome this, uh, what I call this, uh, eliminating the uptightness barrier. So here on the, your left-hand side is us, attempt to communicate the gospel, and over on the right-hand side are the person or persons that we might be talking to any kind of setting. How do these three components work? And by the way, they're not really rigid, individual, separate compartments. In real life, they kind of all blend and work together, but compartmentalizing helps us to understand how these things work. So let me begin, first of all, with logos or the content. There is a content to the gospel, substantive truth content. In the Old Testament, uh, God gave laws to Moses. Then he sent his prophets who preached to the people of Israel. About eight centuries before the coming of Christ, the prophets and other people began to write down what these prophets were speaking. And they were all kind of put together in what we call the Old Testament. There are many stories in it, but there's substantive truth in it as well. And then as God's purposes in humanity came to its climax, and he became a human being himself and came to this earth and Jesus Christ came, Christ taught us. And people wrote down what Christ taught. And then he commissioned his apostles to go teach. And he said, teach them everything that I have obeyed, uh, commanded you and teach them to obey. And so there's a very strong, substantive content to our gospel, the logos of the gospel. And we, to know, we need to understand that and be able to communicate that. Now, let me, uh, just a quick aside here on this issue of offense. I began by telling you that one of the problems that keeps people from sharing their faith is they are afraid of offending others. There is a certain kind of offense, though, that is unavoidable. Because you see, the, the essence of the content of this gospel is, is what we've been thinking about. That Christ came to this world to die for us because we are sinners. We are in rebellion against God. And for this we need to repent and receive Christ as our Savior and begin a lifestyle of following Him. That message for some people is offensive. In fact, the Bible tells us it is foolishness. And it is offensive because for some people it is an insult to their own intelligence and their own abilities to fashion their own salvation. That is an offense we cannot avoid. I'm not talking about that, but there's a whole bunch of other offenses that we can avoid that we want to talk about. So there is the logos or the content of the gospel. And in order to help you master it, this is where, this is where some of our base classes really help. The first base class uh, that is starting again up on January 29th, one whole unit of that talks about explaining the essence of the gospel. And so, if for no other reason, if you haven't started journeying around the bases, you might want to sign up for our class on January 29th, where amongst other things you will learn what is the essence of the gospel, the logos of the gospel. And those of you who finished first, second and third base, in fourth base, which is also being taught on January 29th, Pastor Sam will be sharing a lot more about developing your own testimony and how you tell the story and get it across. All of this has to do with the Logos element of the Gospel. Well, there's some more to the Logos. Remember Paul says, your speech needs to be uh, seasoned with salt. Now, what does salt do to food? I don't know about you, but salt, uh, the proper amount of salt, makes me want to eat more of the food. 
If I taste it first and there isn't enough salt, and I tend to have more than I probably should, but I always add a little bit of salt to it. So salty speech is speech that draws people in as opposed to pushing them away. And let's look at Jesus himself. He is our model, by the way, for all of this stuff. Jesus' speech was unbelievably salty. (laughs) Somebody who likes to count these kind of things once counted that he asked in the Gospels there are no less than 163 questions that Jesus asked. One of the most effective ways to make your speech salty is to ask questions before you give any answers. It is often answers given too soon that push people away. But the right questions invite people in. And there are many ways to ask those questions. I remember reading many years ago about a young university student, a Christian woman. She happened to be in a class where the professor was just a, was a committed evolutionist. And she, rather than just simply preach at him and give him the answers or enter into argument with him, one Christmas time she came up with a very unique gift. She bought him a watch. But she didn't give him the watch the way it was. She took the whole watch apart into all of its pieces with springs and sprockets and screws and everything. And she put them all in a little nice little box, wrapped it up into a Christmas gift, wrote a very nice card to him and told him, this is my gift to you. All you have to do is to keep shaking the box and one day it will all come together into a watch. (laughs) Now, you know, it's nice to speak about the theory of evolution. But nobody in their right mind would ever believe that by shaking this box, even if I did it for a million years, that it's going to suddenly come together into a watch. A very creative way of raising a question in the mind of that person. I remember a conversation, and I'm not a, I'm not a practicing evangelist in the sense I do these all the time. But every now and then I do the work of an evangelist when the opportunity presents itself. Some of you have heard the story before, others haven't. Uh, but it's another illustration of this question. I was on my way back from England after teaching at a leadership training seminar there and, and there were two young women sitting next to me and uh, I couldn't help but overhear their conversation because they were next to me and they certainly weren't attempting to keep their voices down. Everybody could have heard them. And they would actually come back from some kind of a sales trip where they were celib- had some wonderful week and it, I discovered that the one that was sitting two seats away from me, her name was Susan, that she was a single gal who desperately wanted to get married. Uh, and the gal next to me, her name was Cammy. She was happily married. She desperately wanted to make money. You know. uh, that much came out in their conversations. Uh, anyway, when the dinner was all served and the movie was about to start, I picked up my Bible and started making some notes. So Susan looked so and said, what are you doing? You know? So I told her, I'm studying. Oh, you're a minister, eh? And within about five minutes, she got really, really stirred up and just lit into me. You know? She said, uh, what gives you, she called me priest. She said, what gives you priests the right to tell us how to think anyway? You know? And she said, all of you people denouncing abortion, how that got into the conversation, I don't know. She launched right into it. Well, I just was taken aback, but I kept listening. And after about five or ten minutes of listening, I decided to go for broke. I looked at Susan and I said, Susan... Your dad never really loved you, did he? She just, all the fight went out of her and the tears just started rolling down her eyes. I might have been way off bullseye, you know, it could have turned out that way. But there was a question, different kind of a question, not an answer, that just completely deflated all of her defenses, got right past it. And we had a great conversation afterwards. I prayed with her, and she said, where should I start reading in the Bible? She gave me her address, and I sent her some tapes from Galatians, because her whole background was just shot through with legalism. So those are just a couple of examples of, of salty speech. But however it is, salt in the Logos finds a way of raising questions and inviting people to make them think a little bit. 
But even when we have the content accurate, even when we have the saltiness of the speech down, it's still not enough. Because an exclusive focus on the logos of the gospel carries a real danger with it. And you know what that danger is? The danger of seeing people as projects and not people. Rebecca Pippert in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, tells about a time when she was working for InterVarsity in, in, in one of the universities in, on the West Coast. And she had taken a young Christian named Bill along with her. And they were in, uh, they'd gone to the beach and they were just talking to these people and they had a good conversation with them and they exchanged the telephone numbers and they were walking back. And Rebecca says on the way back, I could see that Bill was really anxious and downhearted. And she said, what's the matter, Bill? He said, that whole conversation was a waste. She said, what do you mean? He said, you only got to two of the four points of the gospel and they were in the wrong order. You know. And she said to Bill, Bill, what are their names? He didn't have a clue. Not only did he not know their names, he didn't even know how many guys and how many girls were there, which is rather remarkable for a male university student. What was the point? Bill was so focused on the logos of the gospel that he forgot he was dealing with human beings. And you know something? When we make people that we are sharing the gospel with our projects, they know it before we do. And a huge barrier goes up immediately. So we need to get beyond. Yes, the Logos needs to be accurate. And you need to learn the content of the gospel. And yes, we need to learn to ask the right kind of questions at the right moment. To make our speech salty. But then we need to go beyond the Logos to the second element, which is the ethos. And ethos, of course, now has to do with wise behavior. This is why Paul says in Colossians, not just salty speech. He says you need to behave wisely as well. So here's the question. What kind of, what constitutes wise behavior in this context of evangelism? What constitutes the kind of behavior that actually helps break down barriers? Well, as Christians, or evangelical Christians, our first reaction is, well, we're called to be holy in this world. That's true. But you know, in my humble opinion, it is in this area that traditional evangelicalism has got it massively wrong in understanding holiness. Because our tendency is to define holiness in terms of separation. We will quote verses like, come out from among them, touch not the unclean thing, be separate. Bad company corrupts. Don't let them corrupt you with their unholy influences. And combined with this is an understanding of holiness primarily in terms of what they do that we don't do. And of course, historically in the evangelical church has been the big five. Drinking, dancing, smoking, gambling and not going to the movies. The tragic effect of this kind of understanding of holiness that sees it primarily in terms of separation ends up being very exclusionary. And it keeps people out. So we have a beautiful message in our Logos. We have no audience left to communicate it. Now in reaction to that, the modern evangelical church, at least the younger generation, moves way over to the other end of the spectrum. And it's all total immersion. Not separation, but immersion. All distinction is blurred. We want to be one of them and accept it. Do what they do, think what they think, speak what they speak. All in the name of identification. Our trouble, of course, is now you have a beautiful audience, you have no more message left. Because one of the days when you dare to tell them you're a Christian, you're likely to get the reaction, what? You've got to be kidding. So, wise behavior somehow has to find a third alternative between exclusionary separatism and the kind of immersion that leaves us with no message. 
And Jesus, who was our perfect model for salty speech, again is the perfect model for this, this kind of wise behavior. How holiness has worked out in the context of unholy people. See, in, 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 the, in the people of Israel, there was a particular group of people called the tax collectors. These were doubly hated by their own people. They, they were Jewish people, part of the community of Israel. But you see, they worked for Rome. They collected taxes from their own people. Not only that, they used their delegated authority to extort more money from their own people. And so they were doubly hated as traitors and as extortioners. And so tax collectors really didn't have too many other friends except other tax collectors and the other parts of society that the religious right kept at a distance. That the holy people in Israel kept excluded. The problem was Jesus kept hanging around with these people. In fact, they loved to have him over for dinner to meet all their friends. One tax collector named Matthew, Jesus showed up wherever he was and said, Hey, come, you follow me. Matthew was delighted and he started following Jesus. And very shortly after that, he threw a big party at his home and he wanted Jesus to meet all his friends. Of course, all his friends were these people that were kept at arm's length. Because those were the only people he knew. What did Jesus do? He went. Everybody else grumbled. Not only that, Jesus invited himself when he was not invited. He came to another tax collector named Zacchaeus and said, Hey, I'm coming to your house today. And while he went in, everybody was murmuring and grumbling outside. This man eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. Now, one thing we learn right away, because Jesus was the Holy One of Israel. Jesus was perfectly holy. If so, and he behaved in this way, one principle becomes very clear. Contact with people who do not behave according to God's law, does not defile us by contact. That was the idea of the Pharisees. They were defiled by contact. Jesus blew that away and destroyed it completely. He says, contact does not defile. Now that doesn't mean he never confronted. You'll read many stories. One story in particular where Jesus was talking to another woman who was another one of those excluded people in Israel because she was a Samaritan. And Jesus engaged her in some very salty conversation that you can read about in John's Gospel in chapter 4. A conversation that kept inviting her to, to talk more, to talk more. And finally at, at one point he put his finger on the nub of the problem to show her that his multiple relationships that she was in and out of, five broken marriages and now in a common law relationship, that none of that was really going to satisfy the deepest needs of her heart anyway. So Jesus was able to model for us Neither the kind of separatism that excluded people and left him with a message but no audience, nor the kind of immersion that gave him a wonderful audience but no message, but what Joe Aldrich called critical participation that did not affirm their ungodly lifestyles, but affirmed their creation in the image of God as human beings with whom we shared hopes, dreams and desires. And that kind of participation provides opportunities for wise and salty speech as well. You know, I discovered something. I don't have that much contact daily in my present calling and where I live. But where I lived before and where I worked in Atomic Energy of Canada, both our neighbors as well as all the people that I worked with were not Christ followers. <clears throat> and I learned a very important lesson. I learned that if they respect you, and they know that you like them, they respect your boundaries. They respect your convictions without your ever having to say anything. Let me tell you one story, and, and please don't uh, get sidetracked because it's about alcohol, but the principle is not about alcohol at all. Listen carefully. 
Where I had a young fellow who used to work for me, the English guy, his name was Jeremy. And uh, one time when I went to England for a conference, I was away for a month, and so Jerry gave me his parents' address. He said, go over one weekend and visit them out in the English countryside. And we did. We had a great time with them. And the following year, his parents were going to come over to, to visit them here. So I wanted Sham to meet them, these people that had been so hospitable to us. And, and so we invited Jerry and his wife and his uh, father and mother over to our home for dinner. Well, the night before they were supposed to come, I got a call from Jerry and he said, you know, he said, you know, my dad has some slight trouble with his heart. And so he has to, uh, he has to drink wine with his meals regularly. He said, okay, if we brought a bottle of wine with us. Jerry knew that we don't drink. And so yeah, I said, sure, by all means. Well, anyway, they arrived the next evening at the doorstep and came in, no bottle of wine. Anyway, we had a great evening. And so the next morning when I went into work, I talked to Jerry and we chatted and relived some of the fun times we had the previous night. And I said, by the way, I'm curious, how come you didn't bring the wine? He said, oh, when I went back after our conversation, I told my wife, Pauline, what we're going to do. She said, absolutely no way. We're not taking that stuff into Sham and Sundar's house. I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to make a big deal. And as I said, the issue is not about alcohol, folks. It's the principle that if if they respect you, you respect them, they do not see your convictions as exclusionary at all. So you don't have to blur the distinctions. So that's the challenge for us. Neither separation nor immersion, but a wise participation that does not have to affirm their lifestyles that are contrary to God, but can affirm their creation in the image of God and the fact that they and we share many common hopes, dreams and desires together. This is the kind of ethos, I think, that builds credibility. There's one other dimension to this ethos. That is crucial, I think, in evangelism. And that's authenticity. Many of you know John Grisham, the famous uh, novelist. There was a time not too many years ago when the number one bestseller, paperback, the number two paperback bestseller, and the number three paperback bestseller, and the number one hardcover bestseller at the same time were all John Grisham's. That has never happened before in publication history. But do you know how he got that famous? Well, his first book was called A Time to Kill. It was a flop. No advertisements, no promotions, no reviews, and it sold about 5,000 copies. Then he wrote the book called The Firm. (laughs) Again, no big reviews. There were a few and they were negative. But guess what happened? People liked it, and people who liked it started telling everybody else, and it sold 7 million copies. Without any grand advertisement, without any grand promotion, what happened? The people who read it, loved it, and so they told people, and when they were telling the people, the people who were listening to it knew that the persons who were telling them loved it. This is absolutely critical when it comes to evangelism. You could have the logos down pat. You could have the words down pat. You could have your speech salty. Your behavior can be wise and perfectly bridge the balance between separation and immersion. But if they don't get a sense that you love this person called Jesus that you're talking about, then it's not going to make much difference. I mean, would you buy a product from somebody who came to your house to sell you a product and they didn't think it was very good? Or at least you got the idea they weren't too excited about it? So, authenticity. It doesn't all have to mean like Curtis was saying. It doesn't have to mean everybody has to lift up their hands and sing loudly. That's not the only way to express passion. But, But we are talking about a person, not about ideas. Do we know this person? Do we love this person? Do we have a deep longing? That, that's why all this worship and all the things we've been singing is so essential to this ministry of evangelism. 
Again, like the business of project, they will immediately sense when there is inauthenticity. And if first base and fourth base helps you with uh, Logos, the second base class that we teach on February the 5th, uh, I call this stoking the fires of your own relationship with Jesus. That's what second base is all about. About 150 of you are eligible to go there, and some of you have finished all the five bases. You might want to consider taking it again. We've extensively revised that to, to get this whole thing down to as accessible a level as possible so as many of us as possible can get started on this journey of, of, of uh, pursuing and loving Christ-likeness in our own lives. Okay, very quickly, logos, ethos, and we've got one more thing, and that's pathos or compassion. Going back to what Paul said, he said it's not enough for our behavior to be wise, it's not enough for our speech to be salty. He says your speech has also got to be full of grace. And Jesus again is a perfect model for gracious and compassionate speech. The one dimension of grace that I want to focus on is that compassionate dimension. There's another story in, in the Gospel of John about a woman who was caught in adultery. And again, the separatists among there brought her to Jesus and said, now you have to condemn her according to the law. Well, Jesus resorted to some very salty speech and asked a couple of troubling questions of all these people who wanted to stone her and said, hey, and they were all men. They said, okay, whichever one of you is free from guilt and free from sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. One by one, they all took off. And then Jesus turns to the woman and said, where are the people who condemned you? He said, they're not here. He said, I don't condemn you either. Go, but he also said, go and sin no more. Ethos and pathos found a perfect blending in Jesus' life. What does that mean for us? What does gracious speech in the context of evangelism mean? It means that when we are communicating to people their need for Christ, that it comes from people who have been in exactly the same place. As a simple but true saying, a simple but a very powerful saying is, evangelism is basically one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. You see, it, 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 means, it means that we realize and believe with all of our hearts that no matter how different we may be from them in our external behaviors, because the essence of sin is a heart that is in rebellion and independence against God, that we're no different and no better than the people that we are communicating the gospel to. It's that mindset, I think, that will allow grace to communicate itself. It says, I will speak honestly about your sin, but I do not condemn. And there's another dimension to this gracious speech. Personally, and it varies from different ones of us, one of the most amazing and most effective ways, I have never known it to fail. I've known my words to fail. I've known my character to sometimes not provide the credibility that people might need. But I've never known this to fail. And that is, when you take this conversation and put it into the presence of God in prayer. Because He is the gracious one. Prayer is a means by which we appropriate grace. And I've never yet known a person to refuse an offer. Can I pray for you? Can we pray about this one thing? Let me go back to that plain incident. After I had finished with Susan, I thought, okay, now I can go back to my Bible. No sooner I turn back when Cammy turns to me and says, what are you going to say to me? I'm Jewish. <laughs> well, what is the one incident in history that every Jewish person feels deeply about? The Holocaust. So I said to her, I said, yeah, I said uh, that must be a perplexing issue for you to know. Where was God in the Holocaust? 
So I said, would you like me to read something from your own Bible? And I took her to the Old Testament. I said, actually, there's, there's, a, there's a prayer that was written by someone, and you tell me whether it sounds like someone who was in a concentration camp or not. Of course she was interested. <laughs> so I read her Psalm 22, the first part of Psalm 22. She said, yeah. She said, I didn't know that was there in the Bible. I said, you know who prayed that Psalm? And I talked to her about Jesus and how Jesus prayed that Psalm. I said, so God was with you in that concentration camp. Well, she was crying by this time. I said, can I pray for you? She said, sure. And when I started praying, she started sobbing. Now, the effect in her case was, I think, more catharsis, because at the end of it, she said, wow, that felt really good. But it didn't make it any less gracious. And then it happened again, although this time not in the context of evangelism. I meet regularly with several, three or four young pastors in the city to do part of our mentoring vision. And so I was meeting with this young man from another church in the east end of town. And so we talked, he was going through some rough times and he was basically losing all heart for ministry and was wanting to quit and was really, when I asked him how he was spending his time, he was just being dawdled away in a lot of useless pursuits. So we just, we talked a lot and just shared some perspective with him. And then we pulled into our driveway, he dropped me off at the house and I said, hey, can I pray for you? you know? And we prayed. Then two days ago, I got an email from him. And he thanked me for the time together, but it wasn't anything that I said. All the things that I said in response to his thing, he said, it was only when you pray. And he referred to some particular thing that I'd prayed from the scriptures. He said, I want to be able to pray like that for other people. He said, it's got me going and moving ahead. That's what grace does. Grace and compassion motivate where sometimes logos and ethos by themselves doesn't. So I trust that uh, as we continue to unleash our outreach potential, as you build on what Pastor Sam talked about last week, unleashing the hospitality potential of our homes, as you continue to rub shoulders with your colleagues at work and with your neighbors, remember, remember this threefold uh, mark. Get the content right. Work towards the wise participation that can affirm their creation in the image of God and see them as people with whom you share common hopes, dreams and ambitions and never lose an opportunity to show grace and to take them to the throne of grace. Martin Buber, a Jewish philosopher, once told this very interesting story. And I want you again to listen to this story in the light of what we've shared so far and ask yourself this question, what is God saying to you? He said, my grandfather was lame. Once they asked him to tell a story about his favorite teacher and he related how his master used to hop and dance while he prayed. My grandfather rose in the midst of telling the story as he spoke and was so swept away by his story that he himself began to hop and dance and to show how the master had done. From that hour he was cured of his lameness. What does that say to you and to me about the story that we need to tell about our master? Think about it as the worship team comes and leads us. So I was thinking about uh, our benediction last night. It occurred to me, you know, this this model of communication not only uh, applies between human beings, it's the way God communicates with us too. And so here's my blessing for you. In terms of the Logos, I bless you this week with... uh, Years that will hear a very clear and a specific word from God to you. As far as this ethos is concerned, 
May that word come with a uh, accompanying picture of the beauty and the trustworthiness and the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that who he is gives credibility to the word that you hear from him. And then in your times of struggles and testings and trials, whether they be large or small, may you hear the compassionate voice of our Lord as well. So that the grace that comes to motivate obedience to his word also comes to you. Go in Jesus' name.